Some of you know that this is a special uh, report, a special sermon coming from you on Monday. Uh, many of you were blessed here on Sunday. We, we worshiped together, but in the middle of the service, uh, all the power, I think in large part in Makakilo, went out. And so uh, just momentarily, but it was just enough to uh, cause us, our sermon, uh, the message to end abruptly. And so this is just a, a placeholder for those of you who weren't able to to uh, be with us so you can watch the entirety of the sermon. It's also uh, for those of you who were watching live uh, but did not get to finish the sermon. So uh, I figured we'd come up here on Monday and just go through the entirety of the sermon for your sake. All right? Well, one of the things that's really encouraged me over the last few weeks and months is to see uh, our leading men, particularly our elders, not only reading the Word and excited about the Word, excited about their own Bible studies for 2021, but encouraging our church body to do the same thing. I heard uh, Pastor Rob offer uh, last week and encourage folks. Uh, He offered several plans of Bible reading for 2021 and encouraged folks to do that. Uh, I heard Pastor Ryan, he did the same thing with the youth department and encouraged the youth youth to get into the Word of God. I've heard Terry through the years, actually, Pastor Terry is just big on getting people into the Word, and so it was encouraging to know that he was doing that as well at the beginning of the year. And of course, Pastor Jim has written multiple books on the same thing, and and other of our leading men, uh, uh, Steve, our worship leader, is so into the Word, loves the Word, encourages people in the Word, has a Bible reading plan. It's just so exciting to see a lot of you men reading the Word of God, and this really goes along with this idea of defining who we are. And we talked about it last, last week. We are people of the book. We are all about the Bible. And it just thrilled my heart to see this in uh, the life of our church. Well, with that in mind, I'd like you to, to open your Bibles to John 14. And we're going to look at a couple of passages, one in John 14, one in John 15. These are two passages among many. I think there's 20 or more times we see this in the New Testament all three persons of the Trinity mentioned in just a small passage, and they're, they're working, they're doing things, or they're, they're promising things, and all three persons of the Trinity spoken or speaking at the same time, their, their roles articulated as the Godhead. In John 14, Jesus is speaking to His disciples, and this is actually a passage I mentioned last week. Jesus is speaking to disciples. He, he tells them of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And we see the same thing in John 15. We hear God's authoritative involvement and the work of the Spirit in the the life of the people, the life of the apostles there, especially as they later on put together the Word of God. So I'm going to read these couple of passages to you. I think these passages are great when we, a great starting place for when we talk about the Trinity. And that's what we're doing in this study. Let me read to you John 14, beginning in verse 25. Again, Jesus is speaking, and Jesus says this, "'These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom your Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you.'" Now flip over a page or so to chapter 15, verse 26. Jesus again is speaking, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. This is the Word of God. This coming May, May 28th to be precise, incidentally, that's my 22nd anniversary, it is the 50th anniversary of Makakilo Baptist Church, or now Makakilo 
Bible Church. NBC existed as, as a Bible study, as a mission uh, for some years in the 60s, and uh, as a house church for a while, and, and it was under the authority of another church. Uh, but on May 28, 1971, we incorporated as a church. So this year is our 50th anniversary. Well, to begin today, I want to give you a little history, just a brief history of our church. I've read a number of documents, uh, really well-written documents, short and longer histories of the church. I think a lot of them written by Judy Benito. Well-written documents. I hope to, to add to this later on we, as we sort of put together these, uh, a booklet for, the, for you so you can read this as well. Uh, but let me just give you the basic flow of the life of our church these 50 years just by way of introduction to our subject this morning. The first 20 years of our church, we had two pastors. Raymond Lau, who was the sort of mission pastor, he was the Bible study pastor, and, and as they got to the point where they wanted to incorporate, they, they decided to make him the first official pastor. After him, it was Bruce Edwards who pastored the church the, the second half of that time, up to 1990. Now, the best way I can describe our church of that era, as I read the history, is that we were prototypical. Our church was a great example of a, a, a 70s, 80s Hawaii Baptist church. They built, they programmed, they organized, they, their doctrine was endemic among Hawaii Baptists. And, and our church was really a product of that, that era, a product of, of Baptist work in that era. One of the ways our, our church did stand out is that our church, as I read these things, was, was notably peaceful. Our, our church did not have a lot of problems. If you read about it, there was not a lot of firings or, or people leaving in mass and, and problems. These, this, this era of our church history, and really all of our church history, is marked by, by peace. And so our church really stood out as a, as a prototype of Hawaii Baptist Church. In fact, you may not know this, but back then, in those, those first 20 years of our church history, uh, we had a number of Hawaii Baptist dignitaries, if you want to call them that, who were a part, the people who were high up in the bureaucracy of, of Hawaii Baptist life, they were a part of our church. They were involved in our church. They were leading in our church. After that era, in 1991, the church hired another Ray, Ray Viliamu. Many of you knew Pastor Ray, attended maybe a year ago uh, his memorial. Lena, his wife, is still a great part of our church, involved, comes every Sunday, big part. And Ray worked really hard. Actually, he actually suffered a little bit in order to introduce the church to a couple of components to our identity, vital components to our identity as a church. And, and I want to say, if he had not done this, if he had not uh, gone through and worked so hard to introduce our church to these components, I would not be here. Many of you would not be here. What are those two things? Well, First, he brought to the church a mentality that Christian character is the center of Christian fellowship, Christian character above all else. He had a, a saying, and I'm sure other pastors have said the same, the same thing, but, but Pastor Ray really insisted on this and lived it out, people above programs. If people are more important, Christian character is more important than programs. And building sort of off, off the, the peace that the church had had for 20 years, he expanded this really to all Christian character. He wanted people to experience God. He wanted people to walk with God. He expanded that idea, and he really emphasized this, that, 
that it's more important to be a person of character than to have the right programs and the right structures and a nice building or whatever. The most important thing in a church is that the Christians there have godly character, that they walk with God, that they experience God. And this mentality, this virtue or pursuit of virtue above everything else is really the foundation of the second thing that Pastor Ray introduced to the life of our church, introduced to the really a, a vital component to the identity of our church. And that is that we as a church are fully capable to be whoever we wanted to be. In other words, Pastor Ray said, we can change, we can do things, we can accomplish things, we can go after things, we can change our setup, we can change who we are, we can change the songs we sing, the programs we have. We can determine if we walk with God, if we're experiencing God, so to speak, we can become whoever we want to be. Ray was not against Southern Baptists. He was not against Hawaii Baptists. He was not against Oahu Baptists, but he introduced this idea really the culture of change to our church, that we would be comfortable with the idea of we can be whatever we want to be. We're not bound by some tradition or some sort of paradigm. Again, in other words, our church became okay with change, and he introduced many changes to our church. And I think, again, this is sort of where he may have been a little bit, in a sort of a mild way, persecuted, that, that people saw our church as sort of a a cutting edge, a leading edge church, and maybe some people didn't like that. They didn't like the idea that we were changing things. We were doing small groups before anyone. We were changing the way we worship before anyone was doing that in the early 90s. Again, Pastor Ray was determined with, with spirit-led people, with spirit-led character, by walking with God, by experiencing God, we could become whoever we wanted to be. And we, we owe a huge debt of gratitude to Pastor Ray. Basically, in his 18 years, I'll just round that up, really, that next 20-year chunk of NBC history, because of Ray, was defined really by those two ideas, Christian character and the fact that we, as we experience God, we can be and become whoever and whatever we felt God wanted us to be. When Ray retired, the church put together a pastor search team after uh, sort of doing this process and picking people kind of in in an unusual way. But I think it was a very fair way that they put together this team, and they put together this team, and, and uh, they surveyed the congregation. One of the first things they did was to survey the congregation, to ask the congregation what kind of pastor they wanted next. And after consulting the congregation, and after talking with themselves, and after going outside the church and consulting people who, who may not be a member of the church, but, but knew the church, like Pastor Jim George, who at that time was not a, a member of the church, they asked what kind of pastor they ought to be looking for. And this really, after consulting with themselves and others and the congregation, this really was the, uh, the seed of really a, a third major piece of our identity. This is before I came, before I came so I don't want to take any credit for, for this. The search committee decided that our church, based upon what the survey said, based upon what they sensed was right, based upon what people like Jim George were advising them to do, they decided they wanted a Bible teacher. I remember I video conferenced with them back, back before some of the modern video conferences, but we did a video conference. They had nothing but praise and gratitude for the pastors who'd gone before, especially about Pastor Ray. They, they really loved Pastor Ray, but they said something I've never heard a pastor search team say. They said, essentially, we're ready to go to the next level in terms of our Bible knowledge. 
our Bible doctrine. We don't feel like we know it like we ought to know it. We don't feel like we know the Bible like we ought to know it. And they said something, again, that I, I've never heard any pastor search team ever say, and that was, that was this, we're not looking for a pastor to come and make our church big. Well, I've heard it a million times, pastor search teams, they put this pressure on a new pastor. You know, you know, preacher, we've done all this, we've built this, we've accomplished this, we've done all this, now it's your turn to come in and make this a big church. Bring in the people. No, they said, we're not looking for someone to make us big. We're looking someone for someone to simply teach the Bible. And I told them then, I said, I, I don't preach simple sermons. I preach long sermons. I preach sermons that really try to push people to the next level intellectually, mentally, hopefully spiritually. Now, I told them I want everyone to know that my goal is to teach the Bible, even, even the hard stuff, even the deep stuff. It's, it's going to be taught from this pulpit. So when I came, I, I, I candidated, and I told them I, I'd take some time before I would give them a decision, but I came and candidated for a couple of weeks, and, and I preached. Those two sermons, you'll, some of you were here, you, you would remember that I preached two sermons, and both those sermons were about an hour long, and those sermons were really the theology of preaching. Now, I was trying to do my best to bore you guys to death so that you'd be prepared about what I was going to do. And they said, this is exactly what we want. This is the kind of church that we want to become. Well, that was almost 11 years ago. I believe we started interviewing May of 2010. I came a little after that with that desire to incorporate this third part of our identity, that we would be a Bible church. In those first five years or so, I did not make many changes at all. In fact, uh, very few big changes. Some little changes were sort of necessary but, uh, and were asked for. Many of those changes were asked for. But after those first five years, I began to slowly incorporate these changes. But those first five years, I just simply preached the Bible week in and week out and tried to, to establish the, the change really from the pulpit. After those first five years, again, we began to slowly change things. First, we, we changed our statement of faith. We voted on a new statement of faith, a unanimous vote. The next year, we, we changed our constitution and, and bylaws, again, with a unanimous vote. After that, we hired on and brought on other elders, lay elders, not just the pastors we had hired, but we brought on lay elders, I think, a year after that. And I think it's sort of the icing on the cake that we have, as of now, as of last Sunday, we have voted to become Makakilo Bible Church. This is not a repudiation or separation of anything we have been in the past. It's not some sort of separation from uh, denominational affiliations. But I believe, and obviously most of the congregation uh, that were there voting believes, believed that uh, the name Makakilo Bible Church is truer to who we are, that it describes us better than a, the name of a denomination in uh, the name of the church. We are a Bible church. Now, I give you this introduction not only to officially announce that we have changed our name to Makakilo Bible Church, and that will take some time. The, the bulletins, we're too cheap to order new bulletins, so you're going to see Makakilo Baptist on the bulletins for years, and it's going to take time as we change signs and all that stuff. But I'm telling you this not just to make that announcement, but to make clear who we are. This is a series we're doing at the beginning of this year, our, our 50th anniversary year, to, to define who we are as Makakilo Bible Church. What is our identity? What is MBC by definition? What do we believe? How do we operate? How do we think? What is our ministry philosophy? 
In addition to this, and I alluded to this a, a second ago, uh, but I hope after this to, to put together a little booklet that defining who we are, of all these sermons, put them together, put some of our church documents, but perhaps put our church history in there so that we can have a, a clear understanding of who we are as a church. Also, for those who come in and, and want to become members and are candidating as, as members, they can read it and understand exactly who we are as a church. So we started this series last week. And last week, we began answering that question, who are we, by saying we are Christian. We are Christian. That's the first part. That's the first really most basic definition of who we are. And we we said we are Christian in that we, number one, believe in the truth of Scripture. And we covered that extensively last week. We said Scripture, we believe the, the truth of Scripture. By saying that, we mean that we believe that the 66 books of the Bible are truly God's Word. Scripture is truly God's Word. What we have before us in the Bible is truly God's Word. And no less, no more, there's not some other book out there that we've missed. We believe that that God has preserved His Word through the ages, and He spoke through men as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, secondly, we said we believe that Scripture is truly perfect. Being God's Word means it is inerrant, it is infallible. There are no mistakes in it in the original form. We believe this is precisely what God wants to say to us, and there's not some kind of list of mistakes that we can go to and we have to be careful of, and we can, when we go to Scripture, we just sort of have to wonder whether or not we got it right. No, this is truly perfect. We also said that Scripture is truly powerful. In other words, it has the power to save people and to sanctify. And you think about creation. God speaks and life is formed. You think about the illustration I gave about Lazarus as Jesus spoke, come forth, and here is this dead man in the grave. His word was so powerful that that dead man, without any personal desire on his own, he's dead, he's lifeless, without any kind of uh, action on his own, he comes to life and comes walking out of the grave. Well, Jesus does the same thing to our spirit, to our spirit through his spirit. He regenerates us. He has that power. And it's not just the power to save, but the power to sanctify. It changes us, it molds us, it makes us, as God speaks to Christians through the Word, it activates. It's not just some dry information, it's truth that is powerful. Finally, we ended by saying Scripture, we believe, is truly sufficient. We don't believe that there's any other revelation we need to look for. We don't believe there's any other kind of revelation we should expect or mine for. We shouldn't be looking for dreams or visions or revelations The Word of God is everything we need to equip us for every good work. It gives us everything we need for life and godliness. It is sufficient. And we're going to spend more time on that doctrine later on when we get to the doctrine of sola scriptura. But the Scripture, we believe, by saying we believe in the truth of Scripture means we believe the Scripture is truly sufficient. Well, today we're looking at the second thing we mean by saying we are Christian. And that is, number two, we believe in the triune God. We believe in the triune God. Now, by saying this, I mean two distinct things. I told the crowd yesterday, I suppose if I were smarter, I would have come up with three co-equal, co-eternal points, but here are two things we mean when we say we believe in the triune God. Number one, we believe in the Trinity. That is to say, we believe the Bible teaches that God is three persons in one single essence. 
We believe that as you read the Bible, if you were a man on a desert island and you just went through the Bible, you began reading and you read it over and over, you would come to the conclusion that the Father is God, that the Son, Jesus, is God, and that the Spirit is God. But you would also come up with a conclusion that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. Three distinct persons, yet one single divine essence or subsistence, a triunity or trinity. Now, this doctrine is hard for our brains to, commit, uh, to comprehend, or perhaps maybe not the doctrine itself, but just understanding how it works. It's hard for us. We don't really have in nature around us some readily available illustration of the three-in-oneness of God. And over the years, people have tried to, to say things or to give examples. Usually, these things fail. I, I've always heard this thing. One guy said, believing in the Trinity is believing that one plus one plus one equals one. R.C. Sproul responded by saying, that's not only bad math, that's bad theology. Someone said the Trinity is like an egg. You have the shell, the yolk, the white. It's all one thing, the egg. Well, that's a terrible illustration because you're, describing, you're just describing parts of, of a single thing, like, like God is made up of three ingredients. I heard a fellow say, God is just like me. I believe I'm a son, I'm a father, and I'm a grandfather. Now, that guy lost me at God is just like me. But that's just simply three titles of one single person. You're not three distinct persons. You're one distinct person. Other people, of course, have used the illustration of H2O, steam, ice, water, but those are just modes of the same compound, the same atom. H2O cannot exist as steam, ice, water at the same time in the same place. In fact, there's a heresy called modalism that says the very thing, this very thing about God, that God cannot exist as Father, Son, and Spirit all at the same time. He just sort of switches in between those modes. He goes from one mode to the next. Unless you think that, that heresy, modalism, is some distant past heresy that was held by some strange people in ancient days, modalism is alive and well today. It goes by a different name, oneness Pentecostalism. Irvin Baxter, in Times guy, uh, I think he just died this last year. Irvin Baxter had that show, The End of the Age. He was a oneness Pentecostal. T.D. Jakes is probably the most famous of all the oneness people, and oneness people believe in modes. This is one of the two heresies that T.D. Jakes uh, believes in. One is modalism. The other is prosperity gospel. Uh, some of you may remember, if you were a, a Christian in the 1990s, there was a popular band. They're actually still around now. I looked it up. Uh, before I, I put this sermon together, but I, I looked to see if they're still around. They're still around. They still tour, do concerts, put out uh, albums and stuff. Uh, but there was a, a group of a trio, uh, three people, <laughs> uh, uh, interestingly enough. And this, these three guys, Phillips, Craig, and Dean, they are oneness Pentecostals. I didn't know that when I bought their CDs back then. Oneness people, modalists have a problem, obviously, in a number of passages. You should think just of the, the baptism of Jesus where all three persons are there at the same time in the same place, not switching between modes. 
Well, all that to say this, there's a point at which our minds fail, and there's a point at which we have to say, you know, the, the truth of the Trinity exists, it, it's taught in the Bible, it's everywhere throughout Scripture. My mind may not be able to find an exact re-presentation re, uh, of it in nature or in my mind, but it is true, it is in Scripture. And that's what I want to spend a little bit of time doing, just to establish that in our church, in our, in our hearts, in our minds. I don't think that a lot of folks in our church struggle with the doctrine of the Trinity. They might, they might struggle picturing it or talking about it, uh, but I don't think there's, there's people in our church. I would say if, if there were, if, if I like, felt like there was a great threat of modalism or some other uh, heresy against the Trinity, uh, we would spend a month of Sundays talking about the Trinity, establishing it in the Bible. But I do want to establish it just for a few moments because we do believe in it, and perhaps this will help you as you defend it to others or uh, maybe just in your own heart as you uh, become enamored with the idea of the Trinity. So let's just go through both Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and I'll just show you how the Bible teaches the Trinity. Again, this is not comprehensive. There's so much we could spend many, many Sundays studying this. Where do we start? Well, we start right at the beginning. I think most of you knew where this would begin, but I'd start there. The very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image. Now listen, that verse in of itself is not proof of the Trinity. That, that could just be a, a Hebrew device called the, the divine plural, a linguistic device. But because the Bible goes on to reveal more and more about the nature of, of God, that it is three in one, I do believe we can say with certainty that's what that verse means. It's talking about the three-in-oneness of God there at creation. There are other glimmers that sound much like Genesis 1.26. You think just a couple of later, chapters later in Genesis 3, man is attempting to, uh, God says, become like us. Same thing in Isaiah 6 verse 8. God says, who will go for us? And that's where Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Again, that same idea of, of a plural God, some, some sort of plural nature of God. The idea of the plurality God is also seen in a couple of Messianic Psalms. If you read the Psalms, you'll hear talk of the Messiah. You'll hear allusions to the Messiah. David understood that he was not the Messiah, but David, because of the covenant and the things that God had said, particularly in 2 Samuel 7, David knew that he was sort of a shadow of the coming Messiah, that his son was sort of a shadow of the coming Messiah that would come from his lineage. And so you read the, the Psalms and you hear a lot of allusions toward the Messiah. In fact, Jesus was often found quoting the, the Messianic Psalms about himself. Psalm 45 verse 6 says simply that the Messiah is God. In verse 7 it says there is only one God. And so we can draw from that that there's at least two people of the Trinity, Trinity, the Messiah, the Son of God, and God the Father. Jewish Theology 101 says there's only one God. And that psalm, like I said, in verse 7, repeats that. There's only one God, but it's one God, and you have two persons, at least at that point. And then we start to learn that there are indeed three persons to the Trinity. Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord. How do we interpret that? Read the rest of the Bible, you, you understand that as that psalm was written, there's an understanding of, the, uh, uh, the, of God the, the Son or God the Messiah as well as God the Father. Quoted in Hebrews, Jesus Himself quoted about His own deity. 
the Lord says to my Lord. Another thing that you see in the Old Testament, especially in those early books of the Old Testament, is a particular being called the angel of the Lord. Now, sometimes you can see this. It's clearly just simply a messenger. It is not it is one of the many angels of God, created by God, sent, these spiritual beings sent to do God's bidding. But if you start to study that theme in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, what you find out is that sometimes the angel of the Lord is not simply an angel, a created being. It is actually God incarnate. One of the places that we see this is Genesis chapter 16. The angel of the Lord is, is sent to Abram's wife, Sarai, to tell her that she's in her old age is going to have a child. And she addresses that angel not as merely an angel. She addresses the angel of the Lord as God. Now, it seems again that there is God the Father who is God in heaven, and there is some sort of pre-incarnate fleshly being, the angel of the Lord, we would know as perhaps the pre-incarnate Messiah, that, that Jesus Himself would come incarnated during the Old Testament days. Where else do we see the Trinity? Several times in the prophets, especially Isaiah, you find the, the future Messiah calling Himself Yahweh. That's in Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 9. In Isaiah 63, verses 7 to 10, the Holy Spirit is called Yahweh. In fact, that passage, it says the Spirit is Yahweh and the angel of the Lord is Yahweh. And so here we have all three persons of the Trinity represented in the Old Testament. Probably not as clear and definitely not as clear as what we see in the New Testament but it is attested to in the Old Testament. One final thing that we can note, among many other things, about the Old Testament reference to the Trinity is the predominance of that, that threeness or the plurality of God, and particularly a three-in-oneness, a, a trinity. Obviously, and we read this in our worship service yesterday, obviously the trifold, holy, 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 holy. You think even going back to the very first blessing of God, the very first benediction, the most famous of all benedictions, it is, it is stated in a trifold way, the Lord bless you, the Lord make His face to shine upon you, the Lord lift His countenance upon you. This is what theologians call the Trinitarian cadence of the Bible. You know, a cadence, it's a rhythm, it's a march and there, there's a, a threefold march, a bump, bump, bump. When it talks of God, when it talks of Yahweh, you can almost hear it all throughout Scripture, this, this Trinitarian cadence. This Trinitarian cadence, by the way, is so predominant, it doesn't matter how much you try to eradicate the Bible of the Trinity, you're going to find that Trinitarian cadence. Uh, I told the crowd yesterday that uh, a lady came to my house with her daughter, I think, uh, at one point, Jehovah's Witness lady, and she came to, you know, share with me Watchtower Society information, and, and uh, I told her I was a Christian pastor and did not believe uh, what she t was teaching was true, and uh, she wanted to discuss it, and, I, and I, I said, you know, I can even use your own Bible to show you that there is a Trinity. She said, what in the world? I said, yeah, I can show you that Jesus is God using your Bible that the Watchtower Society has approved, and, and they've approved it because they've done everything they can to get rid of the idea of Trinity. I said, open up to the book of Revelation. She opened the book of Revelation, chapter 1. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I said, who's speaking? She said, oh, that's Jehovah. See, it's Jehovah. It's, it's Yahweh. It's God. It's Jehovah speaking right there. 
And I said, now flip to the end of Revelation. She turned to Revelation 22. There again, we read that phrase, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last. I said, who's that? She said, oh, Jehovah. Same as the first, that's Jehovah. I said, read the next verse, I, comma, Jesus. I felt kind of bad because her, her daughter began laughing. She knew I'd, I'd busted her own mom. I didn't mean to, I wasn't trying to embarrass her. I just wanted her to think about this fact. You cannot eradicate, even if you take out words and change phrases and reinterpret things behind closed doors and never really reveal why you want to change these things, but you can never eradicate the Trinity from Scripture. So let's look at the New Testament very briefly. New Testament, God is one, but He is also three persons. First, Jesus is taught and teaches that He is indeed God. He claimed to be the Son of God. We see that particularly in Matthew 26, 63, and 64. We've noted this in our study of Matthew. By calling yourself the Son of God, calling Himself the Son of God means He believed He had all the rights, the privileges, the authority of God. He claimed to be Lord of the Sabbath. He had the authority of God over the Sabbath, just as His Father did. And what's notable about the time that He did that is that even Jesus' enemies understood what Jehovah's Witness can't figure out, because they said by calling Himself the Son of God, He makes Himself equal to God. That's John 5.18. In John 10.30, Jesus says, I and the Father of one are one. And of course, John's gospel is notable because it begins with the deity of Christ. You read the first 14 verses and even beyond, basically it says the Word was with God, the Word was God. And then it goes on to explain, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John says, I'm not the Word, John the Baptist, I'm not the Word, I'm testifying about the Word, and that Word is, of course, Jesus Christ. Now, John and Matthew are not alone. Paul tells us that God the Father with Jesus created all things, 1 Corinthians 8, 6 and Colossians 1, 16. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1, 1 that Jesus Christ is our God and Savior. The Apostle Thomas, remember what he said to Jesus when he saw the scars? My Lord and my God. He understood Jesus to be God. We learn, that's in John 20, 28, by the way. We learn that Jesus as God, we read the book of Revelation, we, we learn that Jesus as God will rule and reign as God. It says in Revelation 20, verse 6, that we will serve Jesus as priest to God. Why? Because Jesus is God. Again, the New Testament agrees with the Old, Old Testament that God is one. Jesus Himself affirm the Shema, the, the, the central truth of, of Jewish religion, the Lord our God, He is one, the Lord is one. However, the Bible and both Testaments teach that He is three in one. Third part of the Trinity, of course, is the, is the Holy Spirit, and we learn more about the Holy Spirit in the New Testament than we do in the Old Testament. The New Testament, there are many references to the Spirit's deity. You can see it in what Jesus and the others call the Holy Spirit. What do they call the Holy Spirit? The Spirit of God, Matthew 3, 16. The Spirit of the Lord, Luke 4, 18. The Spirit of the Father, Matthew 10, 20. To make things clear, Paul says very clearly in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18, the Lord is Spirit. Early in the life of the church, you remember the story of these two rascals, Ananias and Sapphira? This is the couple that 
wanted everyone to think that they were giving all this money, all that they had to the church, but they'd actually kept most of it for themselves. They just lied about amounts. They were trying to deceive everyone about what they were doing, about the sacrifice they were making, but they couldn't deceive God. Well, when Peter is describing this, he says, Peter, he says, these people lied to the Holy Spirit. A few verses later, Peter's continuing to describe it. He says, they lied to God. Same thing in his mind. The Holy Spirit is one with God. Different persons, one in essence. You can see this especially when the New Testament writers talk about the divine author of Scripture as being God, but also the Spirit. For instance, Paul says in Acts 28, 25 to 27, that the Holy Spirit spoke, and he quotes through Isaiah, quotes Isaiah. But you go back and read that reference, and clearly in Isaiah 6, it is the voice of God. Well, we could spend a lot longer here. That's what preachers say when they run out of material. But there really is a lot to, to study about the Trinity. And I and, uh, told the, the crowd yesterday, many of you have received the ESV study Bible. There's actually a, a really helpful section at the very back of the Bible. It's, a, it's sort of a miniature systematic theology. I think it's 50 or 100 pages. And you can just go through, look, look up Trinity and, and study that. It'll give you 10 times what I just gave you today. And all kinds of examples and illustrations and how you can't escape the fact that the Bible teaches that the Trinity is real, that God is three in one. We can't fully understand that. We can't fully comprehend it, but it is indeed true, and it is necessary for God to be who He is as God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Well, this brings me to my second equally important point this morning. I think you'll find this a little more, probably a little more meaningful to you because, again, I don't think there's a lot of you that are struggling with the reality of the Trinity. You're probably struggling with what it means to you. How should it change you? So saying that we believe in the triune God, not only does it mean we believe in the Trinity, it also means, number two, that we delight in the Trinity. We delight in the Trinity. And let me just say, I stole that language from an author, Michael Reeves, who wrote a book called Delighting in the Trinity. I would commend that book to all of you. I picked that book up this week from our library read it in one sitting. It's a little over 100 pages. You can sit down and read the whole thing. And it's absolutely fantastic to, to help you understand how valuable and how wonderful the truth of the Trinity is to you. And Jesus, in fact, said, the truth shall set you free. And He didn't just mean, you know, this doctrine or that doctrine. There's some doctrines out there that are really good, uh, but there's other doctrines that are true, but they're just inapplicable and don't mean anything. No, all truth, all doctrine, all truth that's in Scripture will give us amount of joy, it will give us amount of freedom, even the truth of the Trinity. Now, the key to delighting in the Trinity lies in understanding the eternal roles of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Those names even, Father, Son, Spirit, these are not mere names of God. Uh, there's, there's some great books out there, and it was really popular, I think, uh, some years ago to do studies on the different names of God and what God is called in the Old Testament, especially the, the Hebrews had, had lots of ways of describing God, and, and much of it is wonderful, and, and I would commend any kind of study that the names of God to you. But these are not mere names of God. These are the persons of God. These are the, the climactic and, and seminal roles of God as three in one. 
We can cut that out. The Father, by definition, the Father, by definition, has a son. And so, by definition, He gives. The Father is not a father unless He has a son and gives to His son. The Father is giving, He is outgoing, He is pouring blessing upon blessing, expressing love, expressing justice for the sake of His Son, all in His perfect holiness. When we see all three parts of the Trinity there at the baptism of Jesus, all of them there, it is the Father who speaks, and what does He say? This is my beloved Son. This is my Son whom I love. And what's astonishing about the giving of the Father is that it's not just scant and miserly. I'm just going to give him a little bit. It is lavish. He could have arranged creation for us to see perhaps one good sunset our whole lives. I told the crowd yesterday, unless you're in Seattle, that's not true for us, right? We get to see hundreds of beautiful sunsets every year. Thousands of beautiful sunsets every lifetime. Tens of thousands of sunsets we get to see, and they're all different, and they're all beautiful, and they're all amazing. He lavished this on us. He lavished this on His Son. This is a gift to His Son. He, he lavished on His Son by creating a universe that, that didn't just have a few dim stars in the sky, but literally billions of galaxies with trillions of stars. He could have created this world for and with His Son with just the bare necessities, dull pools of water that would just be enough for humans to subsist. But instead, there are mountains and waterfalls and springs and rivers and oceans and beaches, all kinds of companion creatures, plants and animals. That's just in Hawaii. God with His Son and for His Son created all that there, there is, and it's so amazing, it's lavish because the objective of it all is to bring glory to the Son and thereby glorify Himself as well, thereby demonstrate His love that He gave it all. The Son's objective then, as a Son, is to share what is His. The Son of God came to this earth to seek and save the lost, to bring, to bring us in union with Himself so that we can enjoy the blessings of the heavenlies, to help us enjoy not just some kind of something that we've earned, which we can't earn anything, but to enjoy His inheritance with Him as brothers and sisters. The Son serves as a, a mediator, a priest between God and us, and, and gave His life an atoning sacrifice to secure our redemption so that we can enjoy the blessings of God to His children. The Son of God serves as the Word of God, the very revelation of God Himself, God incarnate on this earth, walking and talking, and then those teachings uh, being repeated, as we studied last week, by the apostles, blessing us with with a powerful, life-changing Word of God. The Son rules spiritually, And He will one day rule as king over this world, and we with Him. What about the Spirit? The Spirit is who inspired the Word, who fills the Son, 
who empowers His Word in our hearts. The Spirit is what makes things flourish and grow. It was the Spirit that was hovering over the earth, and when God created it, turned it into beauty and growth. That's precisely what the Spirit does to us, and the Spirit in us and has regenerated us, the Spirit injects growth and beauty and maturity in our lives. And so it brings our hearts to, 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 to doctrines as not mere cold doctrines, but as truths that would transform us. Even the doctrine of the Trinity suddenly becomes beautiful and amazing and, and, and something that we, is worthy of writing a song. The Spirit, by the Word of God and because the Son of God matures us, fills us, empowers us, enables us, the Spirit even lives in us. And so He helps us see that any command of God, any pattern of creation is there for the love of His Son to spread to us, that we get to delight and enjoy the beauty of the Trinity and be involved in this way. The Puritan Richard Sibb says that the Spirit changes the heart of a person so much that his whole life is a matter of joy and thanksgiving. And so in contemplating the Trinity, we don't just come up with verses that we can whap Jehovah's Witnesses over the head with. It's something that we revel in, that we cherish, that we rejoice in. We delight in the Trinity. We sing, praise, praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. We sing of God in three persons, blessed Trinity. So in the end, we see the Trinity is not merely some confusing doctrine, but it is a very harmony that God sings throughout all creation for His own glory. The Father loving the Son, the Son sharing that love with us and including us in that love, the Spirit bringing to us life and joy and flourishing before our God. And this harmonious Trinity inspires in us true and ultimate delight. And so we sing, we rejoice. Let me read to you in closing our statement of faith. It's really the second point in our statement of faith about the Godhead. Let me read it to you. We believe that there is one and only one living and true God, an infinite intelligent spirit, the maker and supreme ruler of heaven and earth, He is inexpressibly glorious in holiness and worthy of all possible honor, confidence, and love. We believe that in the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, equal in every divine perfection and executing distinct and harmonious offices in the great work of redemption." Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this truth. We thank You for all that You've given us. We pray that You'd bless us as we seek to understand and delight in the Trinity. Again, Lord, we see how Your three-in-oneness is active even in the saving of souls. And so we pray that, God, You, as a three-in-one God, You would work on the hearts and souls of men even now. Change people as we pray this. In the name of Jesus, amen.